Okay, so far we've been talking about unskillful craving and clinging. So I'd like to talk a little bit about their skillful versions. <clears throat> the question is, how do you switch from unskillful to skillful? And there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about the movement from stress through that desire, as I said, to find somebody who knows one way or another to put an end to this stress and suffering. And then finally finding conviction in somebody who really does know the way. And so for looking right that right kind of person, the Buddha says you want to look for some person, and it takes a while to judge who is a reliable teacher or reliable expert on this kind of stuff. And two things you want to look for, though, in a teacher. One, does the teacher have any greed, aversion, and delusion that would lead him or her to claim to know something that he or she did not know? Okay, there, if you can detect that in the person, then you leave the person alone. Secondly, would that person ever recommend that someone do something that would be for that person's detriment? Would they ever recommend that they do something that would be harmful to that person? If so, stay away from that teacher. Now the Buddha also says that you're, but you're basically just looking for someone of integrity. Um, this is an element that also often gets lost as we learn about Buddhism in the West. Most of us learn about Buddhism either through taking a course in school, going on a meditation retreat, or looking at Buddhism on the internet. And there's no way you can tell who out there, these people, you know, the professors who write academic articles or give lectures, the people who are leading a meditation retreat and then go someplace else at the end of the retreat, or the people who are talking on the web. How can you trust them? Who do you, how do you know that they are trustworthy people? And that does, just doesn't come into the equation nowadays. Whereas for the Buddha, that was one of the primary things you would look for in a teacher. Is, does this teacher have the kind of character that you could trust? But he also says, in order to detect that kind of character, you yourself have to develop character as well. well this is an important element in creating the kind of a relationship from which you would then gain conviction, okay, I really do want to follow this path, as I think this path is one that shows promise. So that's good to think about it. To what extent are you developing character in your relationship with a particular teacher? character can be recognized in several ways. When this person is looking for happiness, would he or she search for happiness in a way that would be harmful for others? Can you detect any untruthfulness in the person? Those are kind of the two characters the Buddha is talking about. Um, another way you can look at in terms of the, the virtues of the Buddha himself are wisdom, purity, compassion. Purity meaning okay, actually following through with the desire not to cause harm. Wisdom in detecting what would be harmful, what would not be harmful. But then again, the Buddha, when he was looking for a student, he would look for two qualities. Is the student truthful, and is the student observant? Now, observant here means two things. One is being able to watch the teacher and pick up messages from the teacher beyond simply what is in words. When I went to stay with the John Fu, he told me, when, as a student of his, I was going to have to learn how to think like a thief. Suppose you want to steal something from someone's house. Do you go up to the front door and knock on the door and say, when will you not be home, and by the way, where do you keep your valuables? <laughs> you don't expect them to tell you. You have to sort of case the joint and figure out, okay, when are they away, when do they come, which part of the house do they tend to be very protective of? Okay, that's where you want to look. In the same way he expected that I was going to look at his behavior and learn lessons from his behavior. 
And when he would do something, I wouldn't have to. He, I wasn't supposed to think, okay, this is just the way Thais do things. It was he has a reason. What's the reason for his doing these things? That's how you learn. And secondly, you're observant of the teacher, but also observant of yourself. And particularly, what do my actions? What what are the results of my actions? Where are my actions coming from? What's motivating them? And then secondly, where do they go? Do they cause harm? Do they not cause harm? So these are the qualities that would constitute what the Buddhists think of character, which is an important part of the relationship in putting it into suffering. Now then, based on finding someone that you think is trustworthy, you gain conviction in their teachings. Now conviction here for the, in Buddhism means particularly conviction in the Buddha's awakening, but for the content of his awakening. It's who do you trust? You trust the Buddha. What do you believe in? You believe in the fact that he was awakened, and what are the, what are the implications of that? First general implication is he found awakening through his efforts by developing qualities that you too have in a potential form. It's not that you're already awakened, but you do have the potential within you that you can develop these qualities to gain awakening. And more specifically in terms of the knowledges of awakening, the, you know, his, his seeing previous lives, his seeing how beings are born, die and reborn in line with their karma, and then finally through the, applying the Four Noble Truths, he was able to gain full awakening and taste of deathless. All of that comes under kind of the content of conviction. And then the third aspect of a conviction is, what do you do as a result? You, know, you, try to develop, you try to follow the precepts, you try to develop the principles of skillfulness in your own behavior. So all of this is the background for once you've sort of changed your goal in life, like I want to find, a, you know, I want to follow what the Buddha called a noble search, and I want to do it following the, the path that he recommended. You're giving yourself a new overarching desire now. Then the question is, how do re your rest of cravings and clings match up against that desire? And that's kind of your measurement for what's going to be skillful and what's not. Now, the reason you're able to deal with your desires, as I mentioned earlier, is that desires have their reasons. Every desire has an idea of what constitutes happiness and how you get there. Now, some of these desires are based on misinformation or lack of observation, things that you picked up from a long time ago and haven't really reflected on too much, but they're still sort of sloshing around in your menagerie of, of selves and desires inside. And th your ability to reason with them comes down to your ability to show to them that, okay, if they're unskillful, that the happiness that they're looking for is not genuine, it's not lasting, that you're going to suffer more as a result of following that desire than, not suffer, than, than by not following it. I mean, they make it really plain to that desire that it's not going to lead to happiness. Your interest in the desire goes away. But you have to provide yourself with alternative desires and alternative sources of happiness. The alternative source of happiness, this is why we practice mindfulness and concentration, to get the mind in to experience states of pleasure, rapture, that are pleasure and rapture of form, rather than pleasure and rapture around sensuality. So that you can have an alternative when you when you feel really feel I've got to have this pizza or nothing else. Say, so when I have an alternative, I can just sit here and breathe comfortably. I don't need that. And pizzas are relatively innocent. There are a lot of other things though that are not. And so it's good to have that sense of pleasure that you can draw on. And then reordering your desires, as I said earlier, that the element of desire shows itself two places in the path. One is in the section of right resolve, and the other is on right effort. 
bright resolve, you say, I'm going to avoid thinking about sensuality, I'm going to avoid thinking in terms of ill will, I'm going to avoid thinking in terms of harmfulness, things that would harm other people. And replace that with you know, thinking in terms of what's renunciation of sensuality, goodwill, compassion. Now there are many passages in the canon that give this message that you have to use desire in order to get beyond desire. One of them is the reading that we had where Ananda says, you know, before you came to the park, did you have a desire to come to the park? Well, yes. Once you get to the park, where is that desire? Well, it's been satisfied. It's no longer there. So that it's the desire that gets you there. Um, when he talks about the craving, you hear, hear that other people gained awakening, I want that too. Okay, that's a, that's a skillful form of craving and desire. It's interesting that both of those passages are Ananda speaking. He, you know, he was a stream mentor for a long time, so he, had, he has good experience with what it's like to be a stream mentor, and the ways you still have to talk to yourself into wanting to go further. Another passage is Majjhima 24, with the, the relay chariots, where you, know, you take the chariot of virtue, and that leads you to the chariot of concentration, and that leads you to the chariot of you, but you keep going on and on and on. You're not trying to arrive at the chariot, you're using the relay chariot to get you to someplace else that's beyond them. This is similar, of course, to the image of the raft. You take the raft across the river, and we all know about the part at the end. You don't carry the raft. Once you've gotten across the river, you don't carry the raft around on your head. But the, people, the section that people don't pay too much attention to is, while you're going across the river, you have to hold on tight to the raft. Otherwise, you get swept down. One. Two, the other aspect is, what is the river? It's what the Buddha calls the fourfold flood. It's the flood of ignorance, views, sensuality, and becoming. But you're also using part of the path. is also going to be right view, right concentration, which is kind of becoming. So you need the right versions of these things in order to get beyond, beyond the flood. We'll talk to a little bit in a, in a few minutes about some of the more, some of the deeper implications of that. There's also passage number 30 in the readings. I want to go over this a little bit of detail because there are so many different translations of this passage and it's caused a lot of confusion. To begin with, this comes from the Sutta Nibbāta in a section called the Atagavaga or Atagavaga. And the Sutta Nibbāta, especially, especially this section, is written in a style of um, poetic riddles. In other words, this was very popular among the, the Brahmin sages when they would they'd get their soma as part of the ritual. And part of the ritual they would have would, would then be start asking questions and compose questions in, in confusing ways, using language, a lot of, lot of wordplay in the language. So the, you know, I'm warning you up front, the Buddha is playing with words in this, and the, the, we don't, I don't continue with the conversation between Magandhi and the Buddha. Magandhi does not understand the Buddha. It's one of those cases where the Buddha is going over his head. Because he starts out by saying, you speak of not grasping, I want to theorize judgments. This inner peace you're talking about, what does it mean? How is it by the enlightened proclaimed? Okay, the question is, what is the inner peace? And the Buddha says, you don't speak of purity in terms of view, learning, knowledge, habit, or practice. Now, the, the, the difficult thing here is in the, in the grammatical case of the in terms of, it can also mean by means of, and this is why Magandhya gets confused at the Buddha's answer. Because it's going to be, if the Buddha has views, knowledge, habits, and practices by which you attain this thing. But the, the goal itself is not described in those terms. 
it's, it's what they call the instrumental case, which in Pali can either mean explaining something in terms of or gain it by means of. So the Buddha is talking about in terms of, Magandhya here is by means of, because then when he goes to the Buddha goes to his next passage, nor is it found of a person through lack of view of learning, knowledge, or habits of practice. And Magandhya says, this doesn't make any sense. But if you read it, in, as in the Buddha is talking, using two different grammatical cases here. In the first one, he's saying, you don't describe the view. The goal is not a particular view that you attain, or learning, or knowledge, or habit, or practice that you attain. These things are means. They're the chariots, they're the raft. They get you over there. Because you're not going to find them through lack of view of learning, etc., etc. Then finally, letting go of them without clasping, that's how you become independent. So basically the passage here is saying it, you attain the goal through developing certain habits, practices, and views, then you have to let them go, and then letting them go, that's how you attain the goal. So that's what that passage means. Okay, so let's go through the different kinds of clings that are actually useful along the path. First, clings of use. And here we go, look at passage 22. This is one of my favorite passages in the canon. Ananda Bindaka tells off the wanderers of other sects. The story goes that it's too early in the morning to go see the Buddha. The Buddha and the monks are out on their alms round. He says, let's go see the wanderers of other sects. And they see him coming. They've been arguing among themselves. And they say, shh, be quiet. Here comes Ananda Bindaka. He's a student of the Buddha. These people like quiet people. So they get quiet. And he comes in and sees them. And they ask him, so, you're a student of the Buddha. Huh? What kind of Buddha views does the Buddha have? And here Ananda Bindaka is a stream enderer. But he says, you know, I really don't know the totality of the Buddha's views. Well, if you don't know the Buddha's views, how about the views of the monks? I don't know the totality of their views either. What, what about your views? He says, well, I'll be happy to tell you my views, but first I'd like to hear your views. And so the different wanderers, some of them say the cosmos is eternal, others say the cosmos is not eternal. They go down the list, kind of the, the formula for what were the hot issues of the day. It's kind of saying, you know, are you Republican? Or are you a Democrat? <laughs> do you believe in all this stuff about Russia? Do you, do you think that it's worthless? I mean, we have all kinds of discussions. And then the, Ananda goes on to say then, okay, these views that you have, starting here, he says, as for the venerable one who says, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the word of another. Now this view has been brought into being as fabricated will dependently co-arisen. Whatever has been brought into being as fabricated will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. This venerable one just adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. So instead of addressing whether the view is true or not, he says, what goes into, into forming a view like that and where does it lead? And he's pointing out, well, it comes out because you haven't thought things through carefully and you've been listening to somebody else or listening to somebody else. And it leads you to, if you hold on to it, it's going to cause stress because it is something fabricated. You can't really depend on it. And so it goes down all, all ten of the views and that's his analysis. So he's looking not so much as the content of the view as the act of holding on to the view. What does it do to you? 
And so they say, okay, well now you've, you've attacked all our views, what about your view? And his view is, whatever is brought into being is fabricated, real, dependent, clear, arisen. That is inconstant, whatever inconstant is stress, whatever is stress is not me, not what I am, and not myself. This is the sort of view I have. So it's taking the application of how he analyzes their holding on to views and says, this is my view. And so they say, well, they try to turn the tables on him and say, well, then you're holding on to that view and then you're going to, you're going to suffer too. And he's basically saying, no. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependent, arisen, this is inconstant, whatever is inconstant is stress, whatever stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it has come to be, I'd also discern the higher escape from it as it has come to be. In other words, it's, this, this is a kind of view that transcends itself. You look at the act of holding on to it and you realize, okay, even this view has its limitations, I will not cling to it after it's done its work. While it's doing its work, I use it. After its work is done, I let it go. And then the, the wanderers of other sects, which I didn't include here, which is a great passage, so they say, they sit there with their shoulders drooping at a loss for words. <laughs> He's beat them. Yeah. And he goes and he tells the Buddha what he said, and the Buddha said, it's good that you, you, know, you debate these foolish people every now and then. So this, this is the whole point, though, of right view, is that it transcends itself. Instead of looking at views in terms of the content, it looks at it, what is the act of forming a view, what is the act of holding on to a view, does this, can it allow you to transcend it, or does it keep you stuck? And for all those other views, it keeps you stuck. And that would also go for, I'm, I'm just going to be a person of no views, I will have no views. Well, that's, that, that is kind of something you hold on to. You have your reasons for creating that position, and you hold on to that position, and it doesn't get you beyond it. Whereas right view gets you beyond it. This is why it's something that's it's useful as a raft. It gets you across, and then enables you to let go. So that's views as a form of clinging. And as I said earlier, simply refusing to have a, what they call a fixed view does not accomplish this goal. For one thing, saying, I don't have any particular views, it doesn't give you any grounds for deciding what should and shouldn't be done. There's no sense of, you know, should be done or should not be done if you refuse to take a view, if you hold on to a view of any kind. And for the Buddha, that was an extremely irresponsible t position in a teacher. He said, your responsibility as a teacher is to give some people, give people a way for analyzing for themselves what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Now there you are, you hand them tools, you give them standards. This is, this is how you judge an activity as worth doing or worth not doing. Now you take these standards out and you apply them to your life. That's the duty of a teacher. So one, it's, you know, it's important that you have a view that's clear like this. If you say you have no views, you say, well, you're, you're left to your old preferences or are swayed by the preferences of others. And even this position of having no views is an object of clinging, but it doesn't transcend itself. You just sit there, no view, no view, of you, and it goes nowhere. It leads to a very limited kind of happiness. So this is why you need to take right view as a means to go beyond views. There's no other position that you can take that would actually take you beyond views in this way. The other form of clinging that has a use on the path is clinging to yourself, your sense of self. Now here, we talked earlier about the sense of self that you develop in concentration. That's, that's a useful sense of self. I'm here doing the concentration. Or in the very beginning, I'm the one who's going to be do it following the precepts, I'm the one who's going to be benefiting from following the precepts, so I, I follow the precepts. 
one of the reasons why they say at stream entry your, your attachment to the precepts is no longer necessary because you've internalized them so well and you no, need, no longer need to form a sense of self around the precepts. But there still is a lingering sense of self because you have to develop com- concentration, you still have to develop discernment. So the sense that there's something more that further to be done, there's going to be some kind of self or some kind of I that's going to have to be doing these things. So what kind of I do you need? Well, you don't have to figure out who you are, but you figure out, is my self, am I a responsible person? Am I capable? Can I do this? This is where we get into that. I, I, didn't, I talked a little bit about earlier about the self as the consumer and the self as the producer. The Buddha uses these concepts. The self as the, um, the consumer, that is that self as the governing principle, where it basically says, you know, I, I started a practice because I love myself, I wanted to put it into suffering. If I stop the practice, does that mean I don't love myself anymore? And that thought should be enough to make you stick with the practice. So you'd have to depend on that sense of self that I'm going to be the one who's going to benefit from this down the line. There's an interesting passage where the Buddha says, let go of what is not yours, that will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. He's talking to people who are going to be letting go of them sense of themselves through their sense of themselves. You know? <laughs> this will be for my happiness if I let go of my sense of me. It sounds paradoxical, but that's how the mind works. You can say, well, there's no self there to begin with, so what's going to benefit from letting go of a sense of self? Nothing. So you use that sense of self as what's going to benefit from the practice. Then the second sense of self is that you are capable. This is the one where you know, a nun is talking to the nun. I didn't, I didn't specify it in the, in, the, in the passage, but the story is great. This nun really decides she likes Ananda. And so she wants to have him come to her quarters. And so she has a friend say, go tell Ananda that I'm sick. And so Ananda, being compassionate, comes and he sizes up the situation immediately. And so he gives her a Dharma talk. He says, um, we practice so that we can get to the point where we're beyond the need for food, but we need food in order to practice. We practice so we can get beyond conceit, but we need conceit in order to practice. And the conceit here is, other people can gain awakening, they're human beings. I'm a human being, I can gain awakening too. That is a form of conceit. There's an I in there that's going to be central for getting you on, becoming the I as the producer. We practice to overcome craving, but we need craving on the path, i.e. craving for awakening. We practice to overcome attachment to sexual, sexual intercourse, and there's no role at all for sexual intercourse on the path. <laughs> <laughs> And she bows down at his feet and says, I'm sorry, I was been a fool. <laughs> so you need a sense of self as capable, responsible, and you use this as part of your motivation. I'm going to benefit from this. Of course, when you, as a John, a John Sawat has a really great line, he says, when you attain the happiness at the end of the path, you don't care whether there's a self or no self to experience. The happiness is, is enough in and of itself. At that point, the sense of issue of self becomes irrelevant. Because, after all, what is your sense of self? It is a strategy. Not-self is also a strategy. You know, your strategy is, okay, the effort that I put in and the, and the enjoyment that I'm going to get out of it, is it worth it? And that's that calculating part of the mind. That's why we hold on to certain things. That's why we identify something as a self. Now, if something doesn't match up with that, you say, this is not worth it. 
I really don't want this, then you disidentify. So not-self is also a strategy. Now suppose you have a younger sister, and some bullies down the street are beating up on her. At that point, she is your sister, right? You're going to go down and defend her, to get her away from the bullies. You come back home, she takes your toys and starts playing with them. All of a sudden, she's not your sister anymore, she's the other. I mean, technically speaking, yes, she is your sister, but all of a sudden you don't care. You want to get that toy back from her. Your sense of self grows and shrinks like an amoeba. And we do this throughout the day, about things that we care about, things we don't care about, what we pick up as an activity, what we let go of. And the Buddha is asking us to use both strategies more coherently. Be coherent in what you identify with. Be coherent in what you don't identify with. That's how you get on the path. So that's used, clinging to a sense of self in a skillful way. Then there's habits and practices. Okay, first you have the, the habit of virtue. And then you practice jhana in the process of developing, in the process of developing dispassion. Yeah, these are practices that you have to do. Habits that you have to develop, that you hold on to. If you don't do these things, the path will not come together. Because you need the virtue, you need the concentration in order for the discernment to, to be able to do its work. So you have to work on doing these things. And as I said earlier, while you still have not received your first experience of stream entry, your first experience of awakening, you really do have to work consciously on your virtue, because there's always going to be part of the mind that's going to be wondering, is this really true, this business about awakening and karma and all this other stuff? That's, that doubt will come to an end only with the first taste of awakening. You see that what I said was right, that this path really does lead to a deathless dimension that the mind can touch. At that point on, you don't have any doubts about the Buddha, you don't have any doubts about your virtue. You don't have to identify yourself as, I am the person who's working hard to maintain these precepts. It becomes more natural. So the sense of self around the precepts is no longer needed. This is, what, this is what's meant by not clinging to habits and practices. It's not that you say, I don't have any precepts anymore. It's just the precepts become a natural part of your behavior, because you've seen that it was because of my unskillful behavior that I delayed my awakening, and I don't want to delay it any further. So I'm not going to do anything unskillful. But you still need a sense of I around the development of concentration. You still need an I around the sense of development of, of discernment. So those are the three ways in which views, a sense of self, habits of practice, by clinging to these things you actually develop the path, which is, which is your duty with regard to the path. You develop it to the point where it actually does its work. Only then do you let it go. There's an example in, in the readings about going beyond concentration. But first, let me talk about that. I talked about those five steps. One point I want to emphasize a little bit more is the importance of knowing the. We talked about knowing the location of your craving. Craving exactly where do you focus on for your craving? Because that's where the allure is. If you're looking, trying to see, well, this thing that arises and passes away in my mind that I know is unskillful, what's the allure? You have to find out, okay, where exactly was my craving focused? 
Only then can you deal effectively with it. Now, passage 35 talks about using jhana as a basis for doing this kind of analysis. Jhana is useful for several reasons. One, it gives you a sense of pleasure that you can depend on. You know that, okay, if I have to give up X, at least I've got some pleasure someplace else. I'm not going to be totally deprived. So I've got this alternative. Secondly, it gives you a better way of judging what's stressful and what's not stressful because you get more and more used to the sort, sort of subtle level of well-being that comes with strong concentration. And that enables you to see when lust comes in, when anger comes in, how it stirs up the body, how it stirs up the mind. Is this really pleasant? Is this really something I want, I want to encourage? So it gives you a better standard for judging things. But let's look at that passage 35. These are 35 and 36. Oop, 35 and 37. Okay, 35 is, even though you've seen clearly with right discernment that sensuality is much stress, much despair, and greater drawbacks, still if you haven't attained a rapture and pleasure apart from sensuality, apart from unskillful qualities, or something more peaceful than that, you can still be tempted by sensualities. Otherwise, you've got to have the alternative pleasure. Otherwise, you're going to go back. And if you don't go back honestly with yourself, you go back dishonestly. You hide, yourself, hide these things from yourself. Then passage 37. Okay, the image here is of an archer, archer's apprentice. You become able to shoot long distances, fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and pierce great masses. And that can be, that can be used to, as an analogy for to shoot long distances. You see the long-term consequences of your actions. Fire shots in rapid succession, as you see precisely when things arise and pass away in the mind. And then, then to be able to pierce great masses, you pierce the mass of ignorance. Okay? So, how do you do that? You say first you enter in, in this case, that's the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. You regard whatever phenomena there that are connected with form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness as inconstant, stressful disease, a cancer, an error, a painful affliction, alien, disintegration, emptiness, not self. Okay. okay, you develop the concentration, you get good at it. You get skilled in it. You don't, one of the worst things you can do is say, okay, I did, I've gotten the first John and now I jump to the second. You master what you've got. Or say, I've got the first John, let's go straight to Vipassana. You master what you've got. So you get really familiar with it. Then you analyze it in terms of the five aggregates. For example, if you're focused on the breath, breath is form. The feeling of pleasure that comes with focusing well on the breath, that's the feeling. Perception is the perception of the breath that holds you with the breath to begin with. And you've learned to realize that you can perceive the breath in different ways. You can perceive it as the air coming in and out of the nose. You can perceive it as the energy flow in the body. You can perceive the body as being like a big sponge, so it's not just the nose that breathes. You can perceive it as not so much the air or the energy you're bringing in as an energy radiating out from the body itself. There are lots of different ways of perceiving the breath. And you should find out whichever one is most helpful with your concentration. Okay, that's the perception. Then there's fabrication. It starts off, of course, with direct thought and evaluation. 
In other words, you focus your thoughts on the topic of the concentration, and then you evaluate. Is it a good, this is this good, is this not? If things are going well, how do I maintain it? If they're not going well, what do I change? This kind of little inner conversation as you're settling in on your object. That's fabrication. And then consciousness is what's aware of all these things. So you've got form, feeling, percep- feel, form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness all there in the concentration. And as you're developing a concentration for the sake of having a pleasant body, and that becomes your food. But now you start using it to develop more alertness and mindfulness, and also you start using it to develop discernment. And here you do that by applying the three, these different perceptions. Now up to that point, as I said, you're actually fighting against the three perceptions. In other words, you're trying to make this constant, you're trying to make it pleasant, and you're trying to make it under your control. And this is the best way of figuring out well, where, where exactly does inconstancy begin? Where does stress begin? Where does not-self begin? In other words, you push against them. You try to make something constant, easeful, under your control, as much as you can. Then you begin to see there are limitations to that. Rather than just accepting what the Buddha said, that inconstant stress will not self, okay? You say, let's push against that. And John Mahabhava has a great line, he says, the Buddha says the five aggregates are inconstant stress will not self. Prove him wrong. <laughs> And then John Lee says, oh, you've got to, you don't be in t- too great a hurry to apply the three perceptions to things. You fight against them first. Push against them. Take care of your aggregates. See what you can get out of them. Because they actually, you're turning them into a path. However, you get to the point now, you've, you've mastered the concentration. This is when you use the concentration to look at your other attachments and let go of them. Then you find, okay, the big attachment that is left is your attachment to your concentration. Turn around on that. Then you apply these different perceptions. You've got, and these basically come under the three, three main perceptions. Okay, you've got inconstant, stressful, a disease, that's stressful, a cancer is stressful, arrow is stressful, pace, painful affliction, those are all stressful. Alien is not self. Disintegration, inconstant. Emptiness, not self. Those are both not self. Okay, these are ways of inducing dispassion. Say, so even this con- concentration has its drawbacks. Now we've seen the allure of the concentration, now we're looking at the drawbacks. Because it's something that has to be maintained. It's fabricated. Yeah. And at the point you say, okay, this is the greatest pleasure you've known, but even this has its drawbacks, where do we go now? And the mind inclines to something. I'd really like something that would not have to be fabricated. And then, then you have this perception here. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, and unbinding. And at that point you have to you begin to realize if I stay here, there's going to be stress. If I move someplace else, there's going to be stress. What's the alternative? What's neither moving nor staying? And that's your homework. <laughs> And he says, staying right there, you reach the ending of the effluence. Or, if not, then through this dharma passion, this dharma delight. Now remember, what are passion and delight? Clinging. You're clinging to the deathless at this point. Because after all, your, your habits all along have been to feed, right? You've been feeding on sensuality, you've been feeding on the aggregates. you got the concentration, you feed on the concentration. You have your first experience of deathless, you go, and you lose it. 
You feed on it, and you lose it. So you remember that next time around. <laughs> next time it happens, I'm not going to feed on it. And how do you do that? You have to say, well, even this is inconstant. Even this, it's, it's constant and it's easeful, but it's still not self. I can't, claim, I can't lay claim to it. I can't feed on it. That's why the Buddha has that teaching, all dhammas are not self. It's not just fabrication. You say, I can't lay claim to anything if I'm going to find true happiness. So, but even then, even if you have that kind of clinging, you can, you're, you're left, you've cut several fetters, either the three fetters or in this case the five fetters. Self-identification views, grasping at habits and practices, uncertainty, sensual passion and irritation. And if you do that, then you're due to arise spontaneously in the pure abodes, there to be totally unbound, never again to return from that world. Okay, this, these are the stages in letting go. You've got, you're, coming, you're coming across the river, you've taken the crass river, the raft across the river, you've just got one more step, and then you, if you become, you, you don't complete your awakening, at least you've got your foot on the, on the, on the stream bed, and you're not going to be swept away. Any questions on what I've said so far? Yes. Where, where's, where's the traveling mic? Uh, you mentioned the importance of knowing the location of craving, you mm-hmm. know, and being able to say this is where the allure is. Um, and you have to find out where my craving is focused. Can you can you go into a little more detail about that? Is it an interior place? Is it an exterior thing? And what is the allure? And what is the craving? And okay. what is is it a focus on something, or is it something that's more of an internal? It can be either external or internal. It can be either one. Could you give examples? Okay, give an example. Well, I, I gave you the one about the the BMW chill. Okay, you're not focused on the BMW. You're focused on who I am, your perception of who you are as an owner of BMW that everybody else is going to envy and be jealous of. And you can zip past them in your BMW. That's where you're craving at that point is focus. It's not on the BMW per se, it's on you. The Im- you image you have of yourself based on the fact that you own a BMW. Or say, you know, that you're, you're helping other people. Sometimes it's not so much the, the other people that you're helping, it's your image of yourself as a helper to others. So in that case, again, it's a perception. The things you talk to yourself around the, a particular issue, you like the thoughts that go around that. There's that passage where the Buddha is talking about where is the craving located. It can be either the, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, Form, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, eye contact, ear contact, etc. The feelings that come from these things. Perceptions around these things. Feeling and perception, remember, are metal fabrication. Intentions. And you can actually have craving for craving itself. So all these things. It can be anywhere in any of these things. Hands over here. 
Put, there's someone in the back of the room. We feel, we feel some compassion in the people in the back room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, that, you that, that's the back room, where you are, yes. Get the, get the mic. There should be another mic going back your way. Here's, here it comes, here it comes. Oh, I thought it was going to go that way back. No, here, here's, the, here's the other mic. Okay, okay, fine. Oh. Do I talk now? Or? Yes, yes. Oh, I wasn't sure if he was going to go. Oh, sorry. So um, I, was just, I was just wondering um, that I feel like a lot of people um, have this void, a lack of love in their heart from other people, a lack of unconditional acceptance, um, a lack of like sense of community and connection. And either because they're unable to or they can't find a way to satisfy that void, they do unskillful stuff. Um, so f- just an example is like, you know, if you grow up in an abusive household, right, you're not going to feel the love. You're going to feel like a lot of tension, like not so nice stuff. So you, so you look for it outside of yourself. So I'm just wondering from like um, a Buddhist point of view or from an Ajahn Jeff point of view, how do you, what are the tips, like, how do you, nurture that or is that like I mean are we deluding ourselves I don't know I was just well, you're, wondering you're, about that it's, you know, part of the path as Buddha says is finding somebody you trust mm-hmm. and you really have to look hard so you don't get carried away I mean, this is one of the reasons why kids join gangs you know, they don't get any love at home so they get you know, the, the companionship of the gang that's a really unskillful way of finding you know, sort of a sense of belonging right. you try to look for somebody that you can, you can find you find feels trustworthy that you feel some rapport with, and you hang around with that person. How do you um, balance um, finding someone that can inspire you versus kind of, I guess, grasping and needing that person to fill that void, like completely? Okay, well, it's a question of growing up, basically. Oh, I'm sorry, what? It's a question of growing up, and hopefully if you've got somebody really skillful, they will accept the fact, okay, that you are a greedy, you know, kind of person. And they'll put up with that for a little bit. And then they'll run away? No. No. And then after a while, they'll start saying, hey, you know, know, it's it's like, you know, a mother dog nursing the the puppy. The mother dog will let the puppy nurse for a while. Uh And then after it reaches a point where the puppy starts having teeth, and that's when the mother dog bites them. Oh, it does? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that. Oh. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, but I mean, a, a, a wise teacher will sort of put up with this grasping and needy part, but then push you a little bit more to be a little bit more independent. I can give you lots of stories about a John Fuang kind of pushing me off because I was very needy when I met him. A John who? A John Fuang, my teacher. Oh, okay. My mother just died, and I was pretty miserable. I needed somebody. Yeah. You know? And so he tolerated it for a little bit and then started pushing back a little bit. <laughs> and it was up to me to decide, okay, it, it, his pushing back is for my own good. Mm. Yeah, question. So I've applied your five-step um, dissolving of the craving system on many things, and I feel it works on almost everything. But as a mother, um, the one thing I'm not able to... Um, dismantle using the framework is the craving that my child should live. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if n- not being a monk, essentially have, being a householder and having children, mm-hmm. really just destroys any chances at re- releasing that one craving that my I child s- should I live. Don't, don't let go of it. <laughs> Quite yet. 
<laughs> you know, as long as that your the child's life is is your responsibility, that's a craving you're going to have to hold on to. Now, the hard part is that your child is going to outgrow that craving before you are willing to grow outgrow that craving. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a case where you know, the child bites the mother, you know. Mom, stay away. Stay out of my life. You know? And so he says, okay, even in this case, it's part of the child's you know, maturation process that they begin to learn how to separate from you. It's going to be painful, but you still have, you're still responsible for the child's life, right? Up until the point where they've, they've got them through school and they're ready to stand on their own two feet. And that's the point where you have to say, well, now I'm going to have to learn how to work on this. It's no longer my responsibility. I mean, I've, I've talked to people who are 80 years old, their children are... 60 years old, <laughs> and they still, they still envision the child as this little bundle, totally needy, helpless bundle. And you have to learn, okay, this, my child is able to look after him or herself, and now I have to find another fo- focus of you know, satisfaction in my life. Now the problem here is as a mother, oftentimes you sacrifice so much for the kid that there's nothing left. This is why it's good to develop a practice along the way, in anticipation for that point where, okay, it's time to make. It's time to sort of part ways. Thank you. Okay. Question over here. I have one. Okay. Um, what advice would you give um, to tackle suffering that comes from? Clinging to memories that come, especially after the loss of a loved one in your life. Okay, there's, there's, the Buddha has some kind of harsh medicine for this, which is you're clinging to the things that cause you to grieve. It's a form of conceit. There's the big I am here, and I am the person who has this big loss. And we hold on to that, because we see a certain advantage And okay, I'm the person with the loss. You have to ask yourself, to what extent do I still need this? Part of it is a, sen- a sense of that if I, if I don't continue grieving over this person, I'm not being loyal to the person. And you have to realize that person is gone. Mm-hmm. They're someplace else now. They, they, they don't even remember you anymore. They don't need you anymore. I mean, you may feel obligated, maybe I should make some merit and send it to them. That's what I can do. But my personal sense of loss around them, they don't need that loss. It's not helping them, it's not helping me. How would that change if it's, um, let's say, loss of a dream or not loss arising not out of death but some other event? Something that you had hoped for but it's a dream yes. that you can't attain. Yeah. You say, well, I, I, can, I can live without it. I can dream about something else. And you, here, here again, it's a question of you identified yourself around that dream so much. I wanted to see myself there and now I realize I can't, I can't be there. Where would be some other good places for me to be? Give something else to try. You don't give up dreaming at all. You just say, okay, that one's not working. Let's see if I can come up with another dream that I can find that would be more more within my, my means and also something that I would find gratifying. Thank you. So you just mentioned that one of the causes for craving is craving itself. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha gives an example of a monkey which whole gets a fruit in one hand and grabs another fruit. Mm-hmm. And before it eats the fruit, it drops one of those and grabs another fruit, so it mm-hmm. keeps going on. And this kind of um, craving is very common in the Silicon Valley. For example, mm-hmm. people, so they have a job, 
then they move on to another job thinking that's better. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very common. And um, what does the Buddha say about this? How what's the way to um, break this self-fulfilling uh, feedback loop? Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what is it that I'm craving and, and leave, leaving this job to go to another one? Is it the sense that I'm such a desirable person that every company in Silicon Valley wants me? <laughs> <laughs> Do I feel that I'm, I'm accomplishing something by climbing the ladder? You have to ask what exactly it's motivating this this desire to keep on moving and moving and moving, moving on. And ask yourself, what kind of lack is it inside me that I'm feeling is being satisfied by this? And is it really being satisfied? Yeah, it's, it requires a lot of internal investigation as to exactly where the craving is focused and what's motivating it. I mean, you've got this problem in Silicon Valley where all this money is pouring in from all over the country for every every harebrained notion that there is. And some intelligent notions, but also a lot of really harebrained stuff. And there's this kind of irreality ir around, around Silicon Valley. So you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, what, where is any common sense around here? And you know, what, can I, what can I say is, is something accomplishing, something that's really positive around here? Let's focus on that. Because the bubble's going to burst someday. And where do I want to be when the bubble bursts? Sort of think in the long term. It's the best I can offer. <laughs> yes. Who's got the mic? Can you bring the mic up here now? on. Okay. okay, so um, could you prof- provide some more insights on the skillful means in which one should, um, I guess, form themselves? Because um, with my experience, um, different stages of life would mean kind of different conceptualizations of the self. And then a lot of people kind of experimentalize with finding themselves, trying different things, until they kind of find um, the core, the core value that they can uphold, right? But then sometimes you have unskillful means of doing so, and skillful means of finding the self, of establishing the self. So, how would you go about discovering that? Okay, first you have to <coughs> say okay, anything that breaks the precepts. No, that's your first. That's your first set of values. Red, red flag, yeah. Yeah, it's a big red flag. Okay? If it breaks the precepts, don't go there. And then the second one is. Look at other people who have followed a particular path of life. What kind of people do they become? What kind of attitudes they have? Do I want to, have to be that kind of person when I, when I grow up? And this is one of the reasons I became a monk. For a while I thought I wanted to go into academia. Then I looked at all the professors I knew. <laughs> and what finally hit me was, told this story and I've upset a couple of professors in the past. Um, <laughs> there was going to be a, in a meeting of the American Academy of Religion. I was thinking I'd go into Buddhist studies. So I went and they had this um, seminar on Thai Buddhism. 
and the three big names in Thai Buddhism were all giving papers. So I went. And they had this huge ballroom, 12 people. That was it. And there were three papers on totally disparate aspects of Thai Buddhism, and they weren't even talking to each other. And while I was watching and listening, I don't know if you've ever read any Jean Piaget. Piaget, he's the, the psychologist. He did this um, diary of his daughter's development. And there was one period in her development where she was, every time she took a bowel movement, she wouldn't let her parents flush the toilet until she had made a story about each little piece. (laughs) 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 And for some reason that image flashed in my mind. (laughs) So that's why I said, I can't do this, I'm sorry, I've got to be a monk. So look at the people who have followed different paths. Do you want to be that person? Those are two ways that I would say, you know, sort of start out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes? Oh. yes. Um, my question is regarding, you've mentioned many times finding a good teacher. Um, and uh, so I'm, my question is kind of on this, maybe the balance between having devotion towards a person and then as versus using, let's say, the suttas, so using learning mm-hmm. to uh, support yourself on the path. And, you know, I mean, I, in my personal development, my nature was to be devotional, mm-hmm. and that went very well for many years and then at a certain point and I learned a lot from the teachers uh, they were good Dhamma teachers so I learned a lot of Dhamma and at a certain point it became I realized that the attachment to the teacher or teachers was maybe uh, so strong and the Dhamma knowledge was at the point where I had to almost make myself independent use the Dhamma that had been taught to like, evaluate myself and my own path. And that was actually quite hard, like to just take the teachings themselves, and I mean kind of very literally in my meditation, and say, okay, where am I doing this right? For so long I depended on the teacher and my devotion to the teacher that uh, I hadn't developed an independence of mind. So, I mean, I think... That's not the usual Westerners' problem. I think they often have the other problem, but could you speak to that kind of type? That? Okay, well, that was my problem. I was extremely devoted to John Fung. And back when I was studying, there were not that many suttas available. I mean, they had been horrible translations. And, and his, his message always was, okay, put the suttas aside for the time being, you know, learn the vinya for the monks, learn what's right and wrong in terms of the rules. And then focus in on, okay, what is your experience as a meditator? And work with that. And gradually, it was basically a method of process of becoming more and more independent. Um, so part of, part of a teacher's duty is to see if a student is getting too devoted to the teacher, you've got to push them off a little bit. And the training for the monks you know, starts with very simple things, like you know, one of my jobs became that I was his attendant, the first part of being attendant was to clean up his hut. And then gradually became a guy, you know, I was looking after him when he was sick and doing a lot of other things around the monastery, sort of independently. And his way of teaching sometimes was, you know, if I put something in the wrong way, he'd just throw it. 
even a teacup one time, he threw it because I put it in the wrong place. Now, he wouldn't tell me where the right places were. He said it was up to me to, again, this thinking like a thief. So that's, that's, that's the duty of a good teacher is to kind of push the student to be more and more reliant on his or her own powers of observation. Because the teacher can't be there for you all the time. So I guess my question is, I guess, directed more towards you, uh, your advice to a student like about using the suttas or using the teachings. In my case, I learned Abhidhamma, and I found that actually learning the Abhidhamma, first of all, helped me understand the suttas better, but also I felt uh, more clarity when I was listening to a teacher, whether I felt their teaching was maybe had precision and clarity as opposed so the the use the the development of learning i guess in the development of an independent practice okay you find as you practice that there will be periods where you don't really feel the need to read because things are going happening in your meditation and so you, you want to explore what well, what is my experience here and then you sometimes run up against a wall and that's the time to start reading until you feel, okay, I've read enough, I, this is just, just, it's just becoming perceptions and thoughts in my mind, it's not really something real for me, can you go back to the practice? To so learn how to read, okay, learn how to read yourself as to when do I need more practice, when do I need more reading? I will say, however, that it, be careful about understanding the suttas through the Abhidhamma, because the Abhidhamma was a way of trying to standardize the vocabulary, standardize, make a systematic sort of taxology for all the teachings. Whereas the suttas are basically a method of how the Buddha applied teachings to specific individuals in specific cases. And it's good to see those teachings in context as opposed to being taken out of context, which is what happens with the Apadhamma. Because certain teachings did get a little bit distorted as it got into the Apadhamma. I think the suttas are more reliable. And among the suttas, though, the suttas have to do with the wings to awakening. Those are the ones you want to take as the core. Start with those and then sort of branch out from there. Question back here. My question, um, you've referred to the precepts as a really good metric to decide if something's skillful or not skillful. So speaking of Silicon Valley and the business climate, um, isn't and particularly the precept of not taking what is not offered or stealing, mm-hmm. aren't all businesses that are acquiring wealth, let's say Amazon, stealing what is not taken, let's say, from the small retailers? And let's say they were not to do that. Aren't the small retailers taking from what Amazon could have been? So in business and the acquisition of wealth, how do you realize, are, am I taking what is not given as I get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier? Okay, the question is... Does this really belong to that person, or is it something that person would have anticipated getting? If it's something that already belongs to them and you're taking it, well, that would be against the precept. Taking away from something that they're anticipating getting, that's not against the precept, because it doesn't belong to them yet. So by that definition, Amazon was not following the precepts. Okay. Is that correct? I don't know how. I mean, all I knew is Amazon treat, treats its workers horribly. But I mean. <laughs> well, what I mean is, Amazon became an online marketplace that 
made all the local retailers go out of business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they so and then you'll have multiple examples in businesses where you're taking market share from other people because yeah, well, can, you're competitive. Amazon did it by you know by slashing prices and undercutting the prices so it could drive other people out of business, which was unethical. Now they basically said, okay, we're going to provide a better service, but we're going to actually charge people what it costs us to provide this service. That would be okay. But then they asked to look at how are they treating their workers, and one of the ways that they're making things really cheap is treating workers like little machines, mm-hmm. which is horrendous. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I, I don't buy things on Amazon. So but for you, you have the bliss of blamelessness as a monk. For mm-hmm. us um, people who are interacting in society, um, we, we deal with all of these businesses in multiple different ways mm-hmm. all the time, whether we work there or not. Mm-hmm. So how do we interact with these new superpowers of Facebook and Google and this is one how do you navigate get some politicians who would learn how to trust bust a little bit I mean, this is what they have what they did with the time of Theodore Roosevelt they had they had to cut a lot of these companies down into <coughs> pieces I mean, and you did somebody in the governments that were strong enough to say hey, look this is not in the public good to have so much concentrated wealth and so much concentrated power so that's where I would go if I were a layperson. This question here. Yeah. Hi, yeah, um, I'm a layperson. And uh, I have a question. Is, uh, it actually, it's a little bit hard to explain, but I try my best. I found myself very lucky to be exposed to different Buddhist traditions. And I'm coming from, you know, Asia and then live in Europe for a long time, and then I come here. So the more I am exposed to the different traditions, uh, Buddhist traditions, the more I feel like it's too, more than I expected, I have expected. So, for example, if I see the Tibetan Buddhism, the strength of the weaknesses, Theravada, Hinayana, you know, all, all the traditions. And uh, in each tradition that I have learned and have exposed to, uh, they are somewhat, even if it's, it's under Buddhist you know, philosophy, but it's still different. So do you have any uh, advice on how to get the general guidelines and how to, you know, like sometimes I chant, you know, I sometimes recite, uh, chant the Buddha names and sometimes I do the, I recite the, uh, the tantras mm-hmm. and I mostly I do you know, meditation, mm-hmm. but I, I do a lot more than I thought I could absorb, so I kind of a bit overwhelmed and I don't know which direction I know that you, you know you should go to the good teacher, mm-hmm. the good guru, but I don't know I've been exposed to many of them so could you have any advice on that. Okay, well the Buddha says you, know, you have to look at any teaching as to when I put the teaching into practice what does it do? Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> when, when I put the teaching into practice what, what, do I, what does it get me to do? What are the results of those actions? Uh-huh. Am I, is, is it making me a better person? Is it making me more compassionate? Is it making me wiser? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so you have to look at oh, this teaching. How does it affect me? One thing I think is, I, it's hard to belong to one's you know, uh, sake or the other because I can find good, uh, good, you know, strength and weaknesses in each tradition, mm-hmm. in each practices. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, it's, could I be able to incorporate, you know, all the Buddhist sects? Well, it's best because, to find, uh, start how, with one and get to know that one really well. Yeah. Start with something foundational, and so then you know, okay, this is what this practice is all about. I, I thoroughly understand this particular practice. Yeah. 
And then you're in a position to say, well, what, what, what good things can I borrow from other places? Okay. But you have to have at least one core practice. Because mm-hmm. okay. otherwise you're just picking in terms of what you like and yeah. don't like. I feel like I'm, I'm making salads, you know. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. And so what you want, you want something that's actually co- coherent. Yeah, coherent, yeah, okay, right. yeah. I, of course, I would highly advise you to go to Theravada, but <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and stick with it, you know. Thank you. <laughs> this question back there. Would you advise using the contemplation of death? Um, in a daily meditation to to spark that desire to practice mm-hmm. uh, for me it, it can really enliven my practice I had a an experience about a year ago where I waited to find out whether I had cancer unfortunately I didn't but mm-hmm. but something really beautiful came out of that mm-hmm. while I was waiting it was it was a clarity and a um, and a real uh, sincere desire uh, and much more attentiveness mm-hmm. to my practice, and I'm just wondering if you have a yeah, comment the Buddha, on that. The Buddha definitely recommends that. Um, one of the contemplations he recommends is every morning when the sun rises, tell yourself, "I could die today. Am I ready to go? Think about what is in what in my mind, what attachments do I have that would make it hard to go? I've got to work on those. It gives you some focus." Then every evening when the sun sets, you know, I could die tonight. Am I ready to go tonight? And just keep that up. It's not to be morbid, it's just to give you focus. That, okay, this, when the Buddha is talking about being in the present moment, it's always in the context of death contemplation. He's not saying it's a wonderful present moment or this is the un- unconditioned present moment. It's this because there's work to be done in your mind. And as we said earlier, what you're doing right now is shaping whether you're going to experience suffering or not. So the work has to be done right here. And you don't have much longer. Do not know how much longer you will have, but you do know you have right now. So what's you know, what? And that helps you sort of sort out your priorities. What am I still attached to that would make it really hard for me to go? What unskillful mind states do I have that I keep feeding, feeding, feeding that would make it hard for me to let go of them? Work on those. I read the story one time of this woman general who every day as she sat down to her office, sat down at her desk at the beginning of the day, she would write down the ten most important things that she had to do that day, and then she would scratch out everything except one, two, three. <laughs> and focus on one, two, three. That, that gives you some priorities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Two questions. Uh, one is, uh, you were talking about the several steps on trying to stop the clinging, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, watching the arising and seeing what happens along with it, so seeing it drop away and so forth. Um, one of the things that I was uh, noticing was that certain specific uh, clingings and, and uh, cravings when I'm trying to look for the allure of what is going on there, um, I'm probably uh, not very stable or something, uh, because of which 
the process of analyzing the allure or trying to find the allure while sitting in the meditation or something, that process just completely throws me off and it immediately latches onto that that se- that that craving itself mm-hmm. instead of actually uh, finding what is it what is the allure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like the allure is sometimes uh, in this particular case at least. Uh, at least all these cases uh, that I am experiencing, weight is strong, or maybe I'm not even ready for it. Or I, how do I? What do I do there? Okay, sometimes the, the lure is something that you hide from yourself, and sometimes, okay, as you say, as soon as you see the lure, you go for it, and you have to say, what would happen if I didn't go for it? What would I be lacking? Because this, this is gets down to the craving for the craving. Okay, why? Part of the mind feels, if I don't go for this, I'm going to be missing something. But what if I, if I denied it myself, would I actually be missing that? And again, it's useful to do this kind of analysis when you've had some really good concentration, and it felt really, really good, and you have a strong sense of satisfaction. And then you see, okay, do I really still want to go with that? And if I went with that, what would it do to my concentration? This wonderful state of mind that I've developed. You see, gosh, I'd lose it. Because all too often we believe, well, I can come back to concentration any time at all. Um, and so I can go in for this. And it's the idea of, you know, having, wanting to have your cake and eat it at the same time. And, but realizing, okay, I, I'm going to lose it. In fact, that's exactly the sort of analysis that's seemingly going there. It's like... Um I do ask myself this question, okay, if, if I go for this, it will probably destroy my concentration, but it, but it comes, there's, there's a part of my mind that says, well, come on, you're going to be able to reconstruct that concentration Anytime. very soon, <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. And so there is that, uh, so wh- how, what do you do to talk, t- talk to it? Just say, heedless, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Because sometimes the concentration goes just suddenly and you don't get it back. Uh-huh. There's a kind of complacency that comes when the concentration is regularly going well. You think, this is just going to keep on going. I don't have to worry. But it's good to you know, talk to other people say, I had it, and all of a sudden one day I lost it. And it just drives me crazy. I can't get it back. Hmm. Okay. So there is this other thing. Um, sometimes I find, on some days, I, don't, I have no, no idea if there is any pattern, but... Um, uh, I have in order to keep my concentration going, I need to change the perceptions pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, some days I'm able to stick with one perception of the breath. I'm talking about perceptions in mm-hmm. terms of perception of the breath energy. So, and someti- sometimes I need to change the perceptions of the breath energy pretty dif- pretty often mm-hmm. uh, within say a minute. And sometimes I have to I can kind of stay with it for a long period of time. Is, is there something that is going on that I, that I need to do here? Uh, or wh- what am I to learn from this? You learn from it that the mind has different needs at different times. I see. That something is riveting one moment, but it may not be riveting anymore after that. Mm-hmm. That's what you've learned. I see. So, uh, the, so maybe I could use this as a strategy to tell my mind that the, the things that you've... You, you, the, the perceptions you've been using to try to get to concentration, they may not work. All the time. All the time, I see. Mm -hmm. Okay.
So I'd like to uh, return back to the concept of of this desperation for the acquisition of wealth in the Silicon Valley right now, because um, from my observations, the, um, corporate America has this tendency to to ha- um, to form a system of of kings and pawns, and using the pawns, such as to say, employees or workers in a in in life, I, I guess, to sort of serve the big corporations, the big companies. So even those people who want to acquire wealth while still trying to maintain a strong spiritual foundation usually can't because the acquisition of wealth interferes with um, with trying to go um, pursue the path because you have things like down payments, you have things like property tax, you have bills to pay. And so it becomes... Um, it becomes a an obstacle, um, an obstruction. Yeah, to to devoting yourself to the spiritual path. So my question is, what would you say about the pursuit of an abundance of wealth to create a life uh, to to free up time to pursue the spiritual path to pursue um, the the spiritual foundation? Okay, I mean, you have your choice. Either you try to grab, 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 grab as much as you can and then retire at age 35. Okay, or, exactly. or you can say, look, I can't wait till I'm 35. What if I, what if I get cancer when I'm 34? You know? So maybe I should work on, maybe I don't need all that wealth right now. Maybe I can learn how to live frequently and not be as wealthy as my neighbors and and maybe get out of Silicon Valley. You know. <laughs> 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 it's what it reminds me of. There was a great Miss Manners column one time. This woman was writing, she had her, her, her child was going to a private school, five-year-old kid, kindergarten. And Christmas time came and thought it would be nice to provide a little present for the, for the teacher. So the child and the mother went to the store they found a nice appropriate gift for the teacher. They came back and they wrapped it and the child in his own dear hand wrote out a little Merry Christmas note to the teacher. Next day he goes to the school, comes back in tears. Every other little kid in the kindergarten had an engraved name card. He didn't. He was the only one without an engraved name card. And so the mother asked Miss Matters, what should I do in a case like this? And Miss Matters says, your child is traveling in a bad crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Silicon Valley is a bad crowd, okay? Because <laughs> just reality gets so distorted as to what's necessary, what's, you know, what's important in life. So you have to decide, maybe I don't need to be the wealthy whatever in Silicon Valley. At times, it's also a question of desperation because um, because uh, if you're not pursuing the monastic life, you have different responsibilities like raising a family. You, you, if you might be single, then you have a devotion to 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 service. So, as because because as always, the question and the the condition is as long as the um, precepts are kept and the precepts are maintained, then there is no uh, an ethical um, means to. Um, to accumulate wealth, I would say. That's the main, main yes. Yes. But um, at times it becomes difficult for, 
for simple people, lay people, to to practice and juggle different things um, because uh, there are not many options available. Mm-hmm. In Silicon Valley, maybe outside of Silicon Valley, maybe in Texas, you might um, you know just <laughs> have have a more affluent life if you wanted to. But um, in any case, but that would be Texas. <laughs> there are pros and cons to everything. Texas is too hot. Um, <laughs> what was that? I missed that. Uh, Texas is too hot to live in, yes. but it's uh, much cheaper. Um, but no, that's not that's not the only problem with Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and the <no>, demographic. <laughs> but the reality is is that people are confused about what matters to them. Mm-hmm. Is it wealth or is it spiritual um, growth? And a lot of people uh, try to balance the two, spiritual growth and wealth. Mm-hmm. But in, in most cases, it just ends up being, there, there's a dissonance in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is one of those cases where you have to decide what's really important to me. This is my human lifetime. How, do I, how can I best use this human lifetime? And say, wealth is not that all that important. I mean, wealth is not a bad thing, but if it comes to, okay, either I'm going to follow the spiritual life or I'm going to get wealthy. Okay, spiritual life comes first. You're willing to take a few cuts in your salary and take some cuts in your material benefits. If you have kids, teach them, okay, money is not everything. I, mean, I, I, had, a, my, I had an uncle, and both my, my father and my uncle ran the farm, they had to sell the farm when I was six years old. Um, my uncle stayed on there, but, but just his livelihood was pretty poor all the time. And he was very sort of unambitious. In fact, when he died, the, the, the minister's eulogy from my uncle Fred was, Fred Boucher was a quiet man. <laughs> I would visit him and he would take me out to see his carrot garden, his vegetable garden. And you had the feeling that he could hear those carrots grow. <laughs> However, my cousin kept saying he was always proud of the fact that his father had never done anything unethical to gain money for the family. They, they, had, a, they, they had some hardships. But he was always proud of that fact, that his father had always been ethical in his occupation. That's the kind of kid you want, and that's the kind of memory you want your kid to have of you. Mm. Right? So think about that. Maybe you can hear the carrots grow and and find some satisfaction (laughs) hearing that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ajahn. Ajahn. Mm. The decision to renounce lay life Mm -hmm. and to become a monastic is an important decision not to be taken lightly. What metric would you use to judge whether you're ready? And then what steps would one take to responsibly wrap up responsibilities in in lay life Mm -hmm. in preparation for taking that big step? Okay, it depends on what your responsibilities are. If you have a kid, wait till the kid is 20 or 21 at least. Um, And again, whatever... I'd have to know specifically what the responsibilities are to give you specific, specific advice. And the question of whether you're ready or not, you go live in a monastery for a while. See what it's actually like. Because, you know, I found at the monastery, it's good to have our candidates stay for a whole year before they actually decide whether to take on the life as a monk or not. And by Geary, it's even two years. 
They're smiling. <laughs> Is it three years now? Two years or two years, yeah. Okay. And so, but you have to have some time. Are these the kind of people I want to hang around with? Is this the kind of life I could really live with? And you need to have some real experience with that in order to decide whether you're ready for that or not. Because in the abstract, there's no measurement. Thank you. A few last things. Um, with full awakening, the arahant is totally free from clinging and free from suffering. Okay? And the way they do that is learning how to th- see things as separate. In other words, it says you learn how to see f- form as something separate, feelings as something separate, perceptions, etc., etc., the aggregates as something separate from your awareness. This is a really important quality to develop, and it's important to emphasize this because so much is not said about seeing the oneness of all things, seeing the interconnectedness of all things. The Buddha never said that. You see, you have to, in order to gain a real you know, way of judging these things, you have to step back from it and say, okay, this feeling, why do I feed off it? Because if you feed off it, you're internalizing it. It becomes part of you. And then to give it up is like you know, pulling your heart out or pulling your stomach out. In the very beginning, you have to see, how do I learn how not to feed on these things? So that it really will be something separate. And the insight is going to come, is that that perception you have of being separate actually becomes a reality with awakening. As the texts say, the arahant senses these things. This is what feel, this is what passage 36 is. You sense these feelings disjoined from them. In other words, they're there, but you're not feeding on them. You know, it's like... The difference between seeing some food on the sidewalk and immediately eating it, as opposed to seeing where there's food on the sidewalk, but it's none of your business. You're not going to suffer. They're, immediate, they're automatically disjoined from it. A couple of scholars have written on how, you know, you know since arahants you know, must feel painful feelings, etc., etc., they're really not totally free from clinging, they're really not totally free from suffering until they die. And that's not the case. And John Mahabur talks about how, okay, the feeling is there, but it doesn't go into the mind. And that's what's important. Because it's whether the mind suffers or not, that's what makes the difference between suffering and not suffering. They will feel painful feelings, but the mind doesn't suffer. Because they're not gobbling them down. So it is possible to live and to function in the world without clinging, without suffering, and still do a lot of good for the world. But the main point is, okay, you're not causing yourself any suffering, and also you're not going to be coming back. There is, there is that consciousness in awakening. The Buddha doesn't define awakening or nirvana, but he does talk about five qualities. And one of them is that is, there is a consciousness that doesn't have any object. Secondly, it's ultimate bliss, ultimate freedom. It's an ultimate truth because it doesn't change, it's not conditioned. And it's the best thing there is. Nobody's ever gone there has ever regretted it. <laughs> so that's the teaching for the day. We have two or three more minutes. Any last minute questions? Yes. Mike, Mike for the monk. Uh, I had a question about, um, it's uh, Sutta Passage uh, 37. Mm-hmm. Um, 
There's a quote within this. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, etc. Um, when I came across this passage before, I think I'd seen it as uh, usually translated as the cessation of all fabrications. And I was wondering why you choose... Because the word is not nerota. Sankara, but... I can't remember what the... Samato. Samato. Yeah, the resolution now. So what, what, what would be the kind of... Um, it's kind of the, the stilling, stilling of all fabrications. Sure. All fabrications kind of get worked out, and they don't form anymore. So um, just to clarify that, if we're talking about the, uh, the three um, sankara, the, the bodily, the verbal, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. mental, um, I can kind of understand this when this is in the context of... Um, the jhanas, the uh, the form jhanas, the formless, and then the uh, cessation of feeling and perception. Mm-hmm. But could you speak to what exactly the uh, the cessation of the bodily formation would be like for an arhat living well, I mean, a, it's, it's a normal even experienced life. in the jhana. I mean, that that the you know the, at the fourth with the fourth jhana, there's there's no more no more in and out breathing, which is bodily fabrication. In the experience of awakening, you don't have any experience of the six senses at all at the moment of awakening. There's no sense of the body, there's no sense of the world around you. There's just an experience, a total experience of the deathless. I mean, even at stream entry, you, that's what you experience. But then how does that, I mean, how can that integrate with everyday life for the art? Well, then you come back, and then you, 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 from that point you fabricate things, but disjoin from them. There's no sense that you have to feed on the fabrications anymore. But at the moment of awakening, everything just disappears in the, in the, in the world of the six senses. Thank you. Yeah, that, um, that point about the disjointment is very helpful. And then also in this uh, in the sutta, it has, there's a repetition on the bottom similarly with the other jhanas. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be that this insight regarding the... Uh, the nature of things that are bound up with, connected with the five aggregates and the perception of the uh, property of the deathlessness, that this is visible in any of the jhanas. It uh, is possible for out? awakening to happen from any of the jhanas. Now, which jhana it's going to happen to happen from for you, you never know in advance. So you can't say, okay, I've got the first jhana, I've got all I need. Sometimes you say, well, I've just got to keep working on my concentration until I develop the discernment. You never know when it's going to happen. But it, it can happen f- beginning with the first jhana. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Thank you. Over here. Thank you. Um, you just said something very interesting about um, oneness, and uh, I've heard it in Western Buddhism talked a lot about oneness, and even some spiritual teachers talk about interbeing as a critical point. So rather than arguing views being right or wrong, what is the um, danger of thinking too much in those terms? In terms of oneness, is, well, the Buddha said the highest form of oneness you can have would be a sense of the oneness of consciousness. But he said that is also fabricated. 
In other words, you mistake that for the deathless, and that means you stop practicing. That's the danger. So uh, one of these passages was saying that, or passage number thirty-five says, that basically, if you don't have had, exp- if you haven't had experience of a pleasure apart from sensuality, then it's going to be difficult for you to uh, develop. Yeah. So um, if you haven't had any experience of a pleasure outside of fabrication, how can you uh, want it? Want it or not? Not want it. Want it is, is probably we probably want deathless happiness. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, but uh, but uh, if you have not had an experience of uh, happiness outside of fabrication, how can you develop dispa- How can you talk to yourself to develop dispassion or get disenchanted with fabrication? Okay, you have to d- work on work on making it the best fabrications you can. And then see, okay, even these have a lack. Because once you've fabricated something, it's not going to stay there. You've got to maintain it. And there's a sense of I don't know, disenchantment with the fact that I mean, no matter how good this gets, I'm going to have to keep on maintaining, maintaining, maintaining. So isn't there something better? So how is that different from getting sick and tired of it at the end of it? Is that what it is? Or well, that's, that's basically what disenchantment is. Okay, so you do, that's what happens. So you get mm-hmm. dis- sick and tired of yeah, it. Yeah. But then uh, there is a deathless happiness. I'm just surprised that it seems like there's a fabricated happiness that you're always doing that, you're always doing that. But mm-hmm. then you, you suddenly stop fabricating and there is a, there's another kind of fabri- uh, happiness. Mm-hmm. It's it always does, there? It, well, it, it's the potential is always there. Uh-huh. And you real, one of the things you realized was that the potential was always there, but you missed it. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. One last question here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to piggyback on a question about death. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give for someone who reaches, say, 80 years old um, so that he or she doesn't you know is not afraid of death mm-hmm. um, I try say I try talking about um, contemplating the body and talk about impertinence, impertinence um, and non-self and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to work so what, what's the problem well it it doesn't Register because it's not it's not easy for someone um, who's at that age to contemplate, mm-hmm. um, assuming that he or she doesn't practice medita- medication. I'm um, sorry, meditation yeah. meditation. yeah. Okay, you have to ask the person. I mean, your, your concern at this point will be more. Okay, where are they going to go? How can you put them in the right frame of mind so that death doesn't startle them and doesn't make them lose their you know their their equanimity. And one of the best things to do is you know, tell them reflect on all the good things they've done. What it, when the times they've been virtuous, the times they've been generous. Always think about what good people they've been. 
so that gives them some sort of courage as they face, you know, as, as the body leaves. There's this tendency to grasp at anything, and sometimes some bad things will start appearing at that point. You start remembering the bad things you did. You think, oh my gosh, you know, hell is opening for me, I'm, I did this horrible thing, and you go down. So you have to remind, you've, got, you've done a lot of good. And have to keep that in mind. And then ask them, the, the Buddha gives us advice, is that, you know, think about, are you, gonna, are you afraid of losing human sensuality? And if they say they are, I say, hey, there's better in the, in the Deva rooms. <laughs> why, you know, you know, why content yourself with human sensuality when there are better levels? So at the very least, they, they tend to want to go higher. So that's good preliminary advice. But then he goes on to say, ultimately, he said that no matter what level you go into heaven, there's still a sense of, sense, sense of identity, there's still going to be some stress. How about just letting go of any desire for, sense, for self-identity? Now, if they're ready for that, there we go. If they're not ready for it, at least say, okay, it's much better than that in the Deva realms. And John Swat gave some advice to some of his lay students one time. He says, look, if you find that you're not going to be an Arahant, at least in the next lifetime, aim to be a Deva, because the human realm is not getting better as we see all around us, okay? <laughs> okay. Question in the back. One more, that's it. Yep. Do you need a mic? I wanted to ask for some concrete suggestions for um, the uh, the abating of the free floating craving, um, I have a free floating craving, largely I think in part situational because my youngest is flown, so the empty nest I think is just an empty, and I, I often will just sit and go meditate for ten minutes to a particular talk of Ajahn Sasita where he addresses the pleasure of meditation. A laying a little bit of craving, but it feels a little bit like putting a um, a band-aid over one hole in a colander. Um, so the concrete things that I would like are twofold. One, is there a place, would you have some readings to suggest where I can use a, a little bit of contemplation other than metta? Metta creates a, fe- a feeling state. So I'll imagine a puppy or my children as babies to remind myself of a certain feeling state. Um, but during the day, um, I can't always sit and meditate. And I would like to explore other, other ways of being mindful, watchful and available, I guess, in the moment during the course of a day as I watch it rise and fall, if there was a way, or maybe it's unskillful, to just willfully change mind states. Um, oh, it's definitely inappropriate to willfully change mind states, and that's what mindfulness is all about. Right. Okay, so for um, Meta, I would recommend looking at a book called The Sublime Attitudes okay. by Tanisa Rapico. <laughs> 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 and for working on your mind states as you go through the day, there's another book by the same author called With Each and Every Breath. <laughs> called, excuse me? With Each and Every Breath. Uh-huh. And there's another book, though, that's, I mean, given the fact that, you know, you're, when your kids have gone, you're beginning to look at the fact, okay, now I've just got the remainder of my life. Um, How do I want to go about dying? Uh-huh. There's a really good book by John Mahabua called Straight from the Heart. Mahabua, okay. Mm-hmm. Those are the three books I'd recommend. 
There were three, actually. Yeah. So may I ask you afterwards so I can put them in Evernote? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for your attention.